Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, if you would, let's please take out the Word of God. Take out your Bible, the Word of God, and turn in it to the book of Colossians and chapter number 1. Maybe you have a printed version of the Word of God. Maybe you have an electronic version of the Word of God. If you don't have one with you, you could take out the Bible from under the chair in front of you. You could grab that Bible, turn in it to page 157 in the back part, and you would be at Colossians chapter 1. You know, one of the most over-dramatized and overused phrases in our culture is this one. We're number one. We're number one. We're number one, baby. It just gets way overused and over-dramatized. In fact, it's a common sight at nearly every kind of athletic contest you can think of. And it's really interesting to me to watch players are going, we're number one, number one, when they're really behind in the contest. You know, they don't stand a chance of winning the game, but ooh, we're number one, baby. And you'll even see fans who are saying, number one, they put that number one, number one, and their team is at the bottom of the standings. It's just an overused, over-dramatized phrase. But I want you to know that today, in Colossians chapter one, Paul's aim is to promote number one. Number one, baby. He's going to promote the ultimate number one. He's going to talk about the supremacy of the Son. He's going to emphasize that Jesus has all-encompassing cosmic supremacy in the universe. He is the peerless, preeminent number one. If you've been with us for a while, why would you know we're in the middle of a series entitled Passion Road, Meeting Jesus on the Way to the Cross? And we've been in this series for a little while. And today, as we move our way through that series with a number of words that begin with the letter P, we're now coming today to perspective on Jesus. We've looked at the parables, we've looked at power, we've looked at purpose. Today and next Sunday, we're going to look at perspective on who this person is, Jesus, who's on his way to the cross. And I've titled the message today, The Ultimate Number One. Jesus is the ultimate number one. And we, when we come to the book of Colossians in chapter 1, and you look at verses 15 to 19, they are probably the richest description of Jesus' preeminence penned by Paul in all of his writings. And it may very well be the most complete statement in the New Testament on the preeminence of Jesus being the ultimate number one. In fact, I want you to know that when I read my way reflectively through verses 15 to 19, I get goosebumps. And I would like to read it again this morning. And since it's such a special passage and he is the preeminent number one, let's all stand together as I read Colossians chapter one, verses 15 to 19. And I invite you to follow along. Just tune in to what he's saying here. He says in verse 15, he, and he's speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Okay, you can take a seat again. You know, as we look at these verses from Colossians 1 today, it's important for us to understand that these verses have great theological significance. They had great theological significance then when they were penned and sent to those at Colossae. You see, there were teachers that were around Colossae in that day that were promoting this. They were promoting that Jesus is not really God. They would say, oh, he's a created being. He is a created angel. He's a high angel, but he's not God. In fact, they taught that he is one of many emanations or intermediaries between man and God, and you needed to work your way back through them, and the highest of them was this Jesus person, but he was not God. And so these verses have great theological significance. They had great theological significance then. They have great theological significance now. And and I'm going to give you an illustration of how that is true by talking about very briefly, just as an illustration, one religious group that exists in our day who goes by the name Jehovah's Witnesses. And by the way, this Saturday, two of them showed up on my doorstep. So this has great theological significance right now. And the Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus was not God. They teach that he was the highest created angel. And they base that partly on verse 15 of Colossians 1, where it says he's the firstborn of creation. We're going to talk a little bit about that. And then they actually go on in the next few verses to add some words to the text of Scripture because it supports their position that Jesus was not God. And we're going to see that it's a classic case of mishandling the Word of God. So these verses have great theological significance. They did then, they, they do now. But also I want us to understand that these verses have great personal significance also. They have personal significance for me and for you, and for our culture today. Now, I'm not informing you of something you don't already know, but isn't it interesting how our culture is drowning in drugs? And this really started a lot back when I was growing up in the 60s, and it's been interesting to watch it continue to grow. And now, you know, it's taking on in the last number of years the the new form of all these prescriptions prescription drugs. Our nation is drowning in drugs, and now we're seeing a trend to legalizing these drugs, and I think we've just seen the beginning of that. really do think we're going to see more and more drugs as the solution to the problem being legalized. 
We have a nation that's drowning in drugs. Listen to the words of Ray Stedman from from a few years ago. He wrote this. He said, as I think of the world in which we live today, surely there is a terrible sense of lostness among people. We are a generation adrift. We've thrown out all the absolutes and found ourselves adrift on the tossing ocean of life. What people desperately need today is a king, a God, an authority, an anchor to cling to. I am convinced we will never solve the terrible drug problem until we teach people that there is an answer to the hunger and anguish of their empty lives. Why do people get involved in drugs? He he, he goes on to say, they have these empty lives and we cannot stop the problem simply by confiscating all the drugs that come into our country or I could add, or by legalizing them. It's not gonna solve anything ultimately. He goes on to write this. He says, drugs are merely a symptom of the terrible anguish of people, of their empty lives, their lack of a sense of worth. They have no king to worship, no authority to serve, no cause greater than themselves. These verses have great personal significance for us. And how we respond to Jesus as the preeminent one actually determines the quality of the life that we live. How we respond to Jesus as the preeminent one actually determines a person's eternal destiny. And and here's what's interesting. Grasping Jesus as the ultimate supreme number one will make a difference in our everyday lives. It'll make a difference in our everyday thinking. When we grasp him as the preeminent supreme one, It makes a difference in how I choose to live my life on a week-to-week, day-to-day, hour-to-hour basis, right? It it makes a difference in how we choose to utilize the resources that God has allowed to flood into our lives. It makes a difference in how we walk through trials and adversity in our life. Now, as we look at these verses, I've broken broken them up into three different sections, Uh, Three concepts. First of all, we're going to see his supremacy in creation in verses 15 to 17. Then we're going to see his supremacy in the church in the first part of verse 18. And then we're going to see his supremacy over death in the last part of verse 18. So let's begin by looking at his supremacy in creation. Now remember, there's the background to all of these verses in Colossae. There was this heresy that was afoot that said that Jesus was not God, that he was an emanation or a mediator from God, but he was not God. And if you study church history, you will find that there really have been no new heresies. All of the heresies rose up in the first number of decades after the church began. And all that you have in church history are just reappearances of heresies. And the same thing is true with this heresy that began in Colossae, and we saw it really popularized in church history by a guy by the name of Arius. And Arius created a system of thought that's called Arianism. Arius lived in Alexandria, Egypt in AD 
20. And here's what Arian, he systematized this thought. Here's what he, he taught. He taught that Jesus Christ was not the eternal God. Arius taught that Jesus Christ was the first created creature, and as the first created creature, he in turn created the rest of the universe, but he himself was created, and he was not the eternal God. Now, that's one of the early major heresies in the church, and guess what? We still have it with us today. And, and again, I'm not picking on Jehovah's Witnesses, but I am using them as an illustration. That's what they teach, just what Arius taught, and the same kind of thing that was being taught in Colossae. Jesus is not God, but he is the highest created being by God. Same kind of issue comes to my doorstep and yours right now as it did back then. Well, what does the Word of God have to say about this? Well, let's look at verse 15. It says, it begins with a little phrase, he is, who is the he? Well, if you go back in the previous verse, we learn it's the beloved son, Jesus Christ. And verse 15 says, he is the image of the invisible God. And in 1 Timothy 1.17, speaking of God, Paul wrote these words, he says, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And, and God is that. God is invisible. I mean, he lives in another realm and another dimension so that you and I cannot say, let's drive over to God's house and ring the doorbell, ask him to come out, and let's just interact for a while. He is invisible to us. I heard the story a number of years ago of a little boy. You can picture this, those of you who have little kids in your home. And he was down on the floor in the family room and he was drawing pictures. And mom came walking by and said to him, what are you drawing? And he looked up at her and said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And of course, being theologically sound, she said, but no one knows what God looks like and he looked up at her and he said, well, they will when I get through. That's the way we think when we're little, but the reality is as we get older, we realize God is invisible. But here's what the Bible and the Word of God says. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. This word image means he is the likeness. It means the representation, the expression of, of the invisible God. We can't go visit God's house and ask him to step outside, but Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the mirror image, if you would. And, and that, by the way, is the overwhelming testimony of the New Testament as you work your way through it. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, it says, speaking of Jesus, he is the exact representation of of God's nature. He's exactly God. He exactly is God. And in Philippians 2, when it talks about Jesus being in heaven with all of his divine prerogatives and privileges, how he laid some of those aside and then amazingly becomes a baby who grows up to be a man who climbs on that cross for us, which is what we celebrate at the Easter season. 
It says there in Philippians 2.6 that he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, something to be clung to real tight-fistedly. He was equal with God. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the exact representation of God's nature. And he set aside some of those privileges and, and became this baby who came to this planet. Look at verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Jesus. The idea is that Jesus is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. But then it goes on to say more in verse 15. It says of him, he is the firstborn of all creation. Again, the Jehovah's Witnesses teach that what Jesus was, he wasn't God, but he was born first. He was created first. And then in verse 16, they add two additional words, two times, and another time in verse 17, they add the word other into the verse. He was the firstborn of all creation. Verse 16, for by him, they would say, and if you, if you get a New World Translation, which I've had for many, many years, it reads just this way, for by him all other things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all other things have been created through him and for him. Now, there's a big problem with them doing that adding the word other into verse 16 two times and one other time, verse 17. And the problem is it's not there in the original Greek language in which the New Testament was written. It's just not there. They just threw it in there. Why? Well, because it helps to support their theological position that they have. But it's not what the text of Scripture says. And one other thing about that little phrase, the firstborn of all creation there in verse 15, well, you know, it's somewhat similar in one sense to our word firstborn because firstborn can mean someone who was born first. And the word could, could mean that, but it has a much stronger meaning behind it. And that stronger meaning is the idea of rank or the idea of supremacy or the idea of preeminence. Now, I want you to just pretend something for a moment. Let's just pretend that none of you were in this room before the start of the service, and the only people here were Greg Hill and Bruce Hess. These two guys were the ones in the room. And let's say Greg and I are here in the room. No one else has come into the room, and suddenly I turn to Greg, and I say, Greg, the first lady is here. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I, I could have been saying the first female has now walked into the worship center for the second service at Wildwood Community Church. Or I could be referring not just to the first one in time that is arriving, but I could be referring to someone who has a particular position. For, and, and in fact, by being the first lady, she has the premier position in our culture of being the first lady to the president of the United States. That's what this term means when it says he is the firstborn of creation. He has the premier position. He is the preeminent one. He outranks everyone, and he outranks everything. Now, why can he say that? 
that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. You will notice that verse 16 begins with a little connective word, which is the word for. He's going to tell us why this is true. You could begin the verse, because. Because. And we're going to see four things out of this. He is the preeminent one in all of creation because he is creation's architect, he's creation's builder, he's creation's owner, and he is creation's maintainer. You know, I don't need to tell you this, but you know, as a culture, we are deeply steeped in evolutionism. You know, we're taught in our, in our, in our schools that chance brought us here. Ultimately, we're being taught that we're really no different than the animals. Maybe we've evolved a little higher, but we're really no different at the core. And so often as we begin to believe that, we begin to act like that. But the Word of God says something very different. It says of Jesus Christ that he is creation's architect. Look at verse 16. It says, for by him... He is the originator. He is the source. He is the architect. For by him, all things were created. Not all other things. That word's not in the text. By him, as the architect, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth. In every locality that you can possibly think of, it's true. I read a, a number of years ago, that there are more than 800,000 different insects. And as we have our church picnic later this spring, you know that half of them are going to show up there. But even in the insect realm, he is the one who is the architect of their creation. Rather, whether it's on the heavens or on the earth, whether it's visible or invisible, every sphere you can think of, the seen sphere, the unseen sphere, the, 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 sphere, the, the sphere of natural beings, the sphere of supernatural beings, whether they're thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, there's no equal out there, there's no rival out there. He is the architect of creation. And not only that, he is creation's builder. Notice what it goes on to say in verse 16. And all things, not all other things, but all things have been created through him. He designed it all. He, in essence, built it all. And in the first, um, in, the, in the gospel of John, in chapter one, John writes this in verse three. He says, all things came into being through him, Jesus. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. He is creation's architect. He is creation's builder. He is also creation's owner. Verse 16, all things have been created through him as the builder and for him. It all belongs to him. He is the owner. It's for his glory. And it just doesn't make any difference what you're talking about, whether you're talking about the immensity of the universe. He created it all. Did you notice that in the last 30 days, they have discovered a black hole in space? You know, a black hole is one of those holes where all the stuff of space is being sucked into it, and we don't even know where it's going. 
And they discovered this black hole. This is hard to even fathom that is larger than 12 billion, with a B, suns. A hole bigger than 12 billion suns that's sucking debris into it. I mean, you want to talk about how immense all this is. He is the architect, the builder, and the owner of it all. You talk about the way that our heart works, the way that our eyes, the intricate, intricate design, the way that our ear, I mean, all of this, he is the architect, the builder, and the owner of it all. It's not evolution. It's not some impersonal God force, and it's certainly not Mother Nature. You know, I don't know about you, but every once in a while, the Mother Nature thing gets on my nerves. I mean, who is Mother Nature? You know, who is this lady we like to talk about? If you're older, some of us are, you might remember a commercial a number of years ago, which was a margarine commercial, and they like to promote in this margarine commercial that their margarine tasted like butter. And then one of the ways that they showed you that is they had Mother Nature show up, and Mother Nature says, oh, this just tastes like my butter. And then it goes, no, it's really the margarine. And she steps forward and goes, it's not nice to fool Mother Nature. And then, you know, you have this thunder and lightning and start stuff that comes down. Who is Mother Nature? I mean, isn't it interesting how we've personified nature? Now, nature is wonderful. The instincts that God has built into animals are amazing. The birds know when to fly south. They know when to fly north. The salmon know when to spawn. Uh, the animals know when to grow thicker coats to handle the cold. But somehow we've credited Mother Nature with all of this. You know, to personify Mother Nature gives credit to somebody who doesn't even exist, and it robs the creator of his glory. That's why Paul writes in Romans eleven thirty six 36 of Jesus and says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever, amen. And in case we're missing the point, he throws this in in verse 17 of Colossians 1. He is before all things. Of course, the Jehovah's Witnesses add the word other in here. He is before all other things, not all things. No, he is before all things. This refers to his preexistence, his eternal existence. He is creation's architect, the builder, the owner, and he's also the maintainer. Notice what it goes on to say in verse 17. In him, all things hold together. He maintains this universe. He sustains the universe. He preserves the universe. Do you know that the temperature of the sun is about 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit? Now, if in any significant way the temperature of the sun were to drop and become colder, guess what would happen to us? We would freeze to death. If that temperature were to go up a little bit, we would burn to death. Who is the one who keeps the temperature of the sun at about 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit? It's Jesus who does that. He's the maintainer of the universe. Do you know that the earth's 
speed of rotation is very, very important. If it didn't maintain itself right where it is, if it were to slow down just a little bit, you know what would happen to us? On one side of the world, we would freeze. On the other side of the world, we would burn. So the earth needs to keep rotating at just the right speed. And who's doing that? Jesus is the maintainer of the universe. H.C.G. Moore put it this way. He keeps the cosmos from becoming chaos. I really like that. Without Jesus Christ, we would all disintegrate. Just the truth. No wonder when Paul walked into Athens in Acts chapter 17, he said of Jesus, in him, we live and move and have our being. Every beat of our heart depends on him. He is the maintainer of the universe. And you know what I find really startling to me? is what it says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. It says there this, He upholds all things by the word of his power. You see, it's not that he's sitting somewhere and he's got the little thermostat on the sun. Whoa, it's getting a little too hot. I'm going to turn down. Oh, it's getting a little too cold. I'm going to turn up a little. I've got, to, I've got to constantly be working on this little thing here. Or he's out there, you know, in some sort of way, just literally kind of spinning the globe. Got to keep it. It's starting to slow down. Ooh, we're going to spin a little bit more. He does it by the word of his power. He just speaks. Son, you stay at 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Earth, you just keep rotating just at the speed I want you to rotate at. He does it by speaking it into being. He never loses his grip on the reins of the universe. Now you say, well... That's pretty fascinating stuff, but, you know, does this really make a difference in what happens to me this week? Yeah. Isn't it interesting how we work? We have the person of Jesus Christ who is able to sustain the universe, maintain it, preserve it by the word of his power, and yet God brings difficulty and God brings adversity and God brings trial into my life, and what am I doing? I'm getting incredibly nervous. I even have thoughts that I doubt his ability to walk me through this very difficult thing. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm rather slow to trust him. Why did you let this happen to me? Why am I going through this? Worry, worry. Fret, fret. Isn't that rather silly when you get a fresh view of who Jesus Christ is, that he is the ultimate number one? He is the peerless, preeminent one of the universe. We see that. We see his supremacy in creation. We also see his supremacy in the church in verse 18. It says he is also the head of the body the church, he's the chief, he is the leader, he is the one who guides, he is the one who governs everything that goes on. He is the head of, and he is governing. And we also see his supremacy over death in the last part of verse 18. It says, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, which may seem like a little bit of a curious phrase, exact same term that is used in verse 15 
firstborn, the firstborn from the dead. And we might say, well, that's talking about time. I mean, he was actually the first one who was raised with an eternal body, never to ever die again. So he could be the firstborn from the dead in that regard. But that's not really the essence of what he's emphasizing. He's emphasizing, again, his supremacy and his preeminence over death, which, by the way, is the greatest enemy that you have and certainly the greatest enemy that I have. And he is the preeminent one over that. See, through Jesus Christ, this is kind of bizarrely amazing in that the tomb became a womb that brought forth new life. He is supreme over death. That's why Peter, in Acts chapter 3.15, speaking of Jesus, called him the prince of life. He is supreme in creation. He is supreme in the church. He is supreme over death. And then we have a key phrase in verse 18, so that, this is where it's all headed, so that he himself, it's very emphatic in the original. It really means he alone, so that he alone will come to have first place in everything. He's the ultimate number one, baby. He's the peerless preeminent one. He has all-encompassing cosmic supremacy over everything in the universe. Now, as I said when we began, this has great theological significance. He is the king of creation. He is the king of the church. He is the king of death. And that gives him first place in the universe. Now, here's what is going to happen. One day, according to Philippians chapter 2, one day, every knee is going to bow before the preeminent one. Every knee in heaven, every knee on the earth, every knee under the earth. One day, every tongue is going to confess, including anyone who might have been entangled in the belief system like Arius had, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is Jehovah God, that Jesus is Yahweh God. This has great theological significance, but it also has great personal significance. What our culture needs, what each one of us needs is a king and authority an anchor. It is foolish to look for meaning in life elsewhere. And this one we're talking about today is the one who went to the cross for me and for you. And he's going to talk about that here in these verses. In verse 20, he talks about through him, he reconciled all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And though we were formerly alienated, verse 21, and hostile in mind towards God and engaged in evil deeds, he's reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Those verses, when you see who we're talking about, are astonishing, totally astonishing. And that should make, you know, the Easter season not just another ho-hum. We're going through another Easter time. There's great personal significance here. And there's another reason why, is there is a time coming, I'm right in the middle of it right now, 
Some of you also are right in the middle of it right now, but there's a time coming if you're not there when you are going to face trials, you're going to face difficulties, you're going to face darkness in life, and there is someone who's able to hold the universe together by the word of his power who will be there for you as he is for me. And he is worthy of being trusted. Is that person able to guide me through this? Yeah. Is that person able to carry me through even though it's going to be rough rapids out there? Yeah. And you know the topper on it all? For those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, that's the person who lives inside of us. He's number one. Real number one, baby. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the word of God. Do we not desperately need this book? And Father, I want to pray especially if there's somebody in our midst who hears my voice who hasn't yet investigated the person of Jesus Christ, who is the preeminent one, that they would investigate him. And if there's any here who haven't yet called on him to be their rescuer from sin and judgment, my question to them would be, why not? Why not? In Romans 11, it says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be delivered. We thank you for the person of Christ who is the preeminent one, and we thank you in his name. Amen. Amen. 